Live. Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Y'all ready for this? Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast with New York Sports Soft and Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We are talking New York Mets baseball. The Mets are still in the thick of things in the National League East. The pieces are coming together. The bats are coming off the injury list. They're going to be joined in just a bit by Tim Ryder, the host of the Simply Amazing Podcast. He has his own Mets blog at the Apple NYM substack.com you can check all that stuff out i had a chance to talk with tim i want to give a warning ahead of time there was a little bit of audio issues at the beginning of the segment but we get that corrected about question or two in so just bear with me on that it's a great conversation with tim that's coming up in just a bit i'm also joined by our legal correspondent phil for to break down the big rule spring court ruling against the ncaa and what it could mean going forward because this is a big deal this could start the NCAA down a path that they could lead to their own doom and destruction in terms of their proper business model. We'll talk that with Phil. Make sure you lock in the end of the show. We're going to have some fun with Pete Considori. You heard of him last week on the Sky Guys and Nick Fred doing seasons at Clone Wars. Today we're talking Holy Moly, our favorite ABC summer game show. We're going to take down the first couple episodes of season three, talk about the new holes, some of the fun stuff there with Pete at the end of the podcast. But we'll get it all started with their six all the way tip. We're going to talk about the Islanders. And boy, they had quite a ride. That is coming up right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time here, and spent a few minutes on the Islanders because their season came to an end last night. Recording on Saturday morning, they lost Game 7, 1-0 to the Tampa Bay Lightning. A very tough way to go out of that series because the Islanders gave you a big fight. They had the tough 8-0 loss in Game 5 that you thought Mace was signaling the end. Then they come back, they give you the thrilling win at the bar, to close out the bar, and it turns out they down 2-0, tie it up, Win overtime, have a fantastic moment for the Islander fans there. And it all comes to an end, unfortunately, in Game 7 because the Islanders just simply could not get offense going. Tampa Bay has the one goal. They get the shorthanded goal from Yanni Gord. And from that, they basically just clogged the neutral zone, said, hey, beat us, and the Islanders couldn't. Tough spot to be in because Islanders played hard. The talent edge Tampa has... It's just so hard to overcome. And the Islanders play that gritty, defensive, team-oriented style of hockey, which fares very well in the postseason. But Tampa's talent edge and the fact that they had home ice in the in Game 7 was a big deal. It's one of those things there. you're an Islander fan, it sucks you lose the same team two years in a row in the same round, especially. But you tip your hat to them. You say, hey, good luck in the final against Montreal. Montreal, by the way, incredible run out of them. They were the last team in the playoffs. Nobody took them seriously. They were down big in the first round Toronto. They pulled that upset off. Sweep Winnipeg. Knock out the Golden Knights, where my pick to win the Cup this year. Impressive showing out of Montreal. Now they are in the final for the first time since 1993. They're going to be the Central favorite against the Lightning, who repeat champs. Nobody's really thrilled about them. 
outside outside of their fan base. I feel like they're going to be the popular pick outside of, say, Toronto or Vegas. The thing with the Islanders, though, you have to watch here, and something you have to worry about a little bit is they have some big decisions to make with this team going forward. And the way they play, the physicality they play with the shortened offseason, two years in a row, this is something you have to worry about that maybe there will be a bit of a hangover heading into next season. Because now he's back on the regular schedule. You're not going to have as long a break as you normally would because at this point, the cup final will be pretty much wrapped up already. The Islanders have played beyond that and didn't win. They play a condensed schedule. They play a lot of playoffs. Two years in a row of three rounds of postseason. And we've seen that in the, with the Rangers in the past where they make these deep runs, deep runs. They get to the cup final one year. They get to the conference finals the next year. They got bounced the first round the following season. Could something like that happen to the Islanders? Maybe. Because, again, you're going back to the 82 grind. You're going back to full cross-country travel. You're going to be going across the border next year, presumptively. And it's going to be fascinating to see how Barry Trotz gets this team in shape to keep it fresh for that full run and another run deep into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Because now you're going to be trying to navigate an October, a late September, early October to June season with this group that has played significantly deep into the postseason each year. It's a tough run. I give them credit. They're very physical. They're a very tough team. They're going to be very tough to beat in the playoffs because their model of play works very well. They are gritty defensively. They remind you of those old-school Devils teams that would smother you in the middle of the ice and make it hard for you to get the puck down deep near the net. This is a team that plays very well in the postseason. Can you maintain that style over 82 games after a shortened offseason again and then go another three rounds in the postseason? Because now the expectations are high. It's not simply, oh, we're happy to be here. We got to the conference finals the first time in the 90s here. Now the Islander fans want the cup. They have come so close two years in a row to having a shot at it. This is the spot where you're an Islander fan saying, I want my cup because these windows do not stay open forever. And the Islanders are in the middle of theirs. They have to decide what they need to do to get them those pieces to put them over the top. They have a good mix already. Do you need another scorer? That's a question you have to consider. Like, what do you do with some of your key frees on the fourth line? Those guys have been a big role in the playoffs. Replacing them, if some of them leave, is important. It's a big, busy offseason for the Islanders. We'll see what happens with them coming up as we keep track of them through the podcast. But we're going to dive into our Mets conversation with Tim Ryder right after this. Meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side, everybody's coming down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, talking New York Mets baseball today. Join me today, the creator of the Apple blog, the host of, I forget, I forget the Simply Amazing podcast, uh, Tim Ryder is here. Tim, how are you? Great, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. I got to say, this has definitely been a very strange Mets season. I mean, if you could like quantum leap back in time to February and sell yourself, say, hey, Tim, in, Met, in June, the Mets are going to miss most of their lineup for a month. They're going to have a lot of pitchers get hurt. 
They're not going to score a lot of runs. They'll be 30 and 31 in first place. What would you have said? I'll take it. <laughs> I think the last part of that equation is the most important, but uh, it's certainly been a roller coaster. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, this year, I think obviously the big thing the Mets fans ought to take away from here is just how historically great Jacob DeGrom has been. Because, I mean, the man's a national treasure. Whenever he's on the mound, there's just brilliant things happening every time out. He doesn't give up runs. He strikes out a million. He doesn't need sticky stuff to get the job done. What's it been like for you watching Jacob DeGrom this year do his work? Oh, this is something we're watching something, 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 something. There's no question about it. Um, the, you know, the work that he puts in to come, you know, to come to the mound at the level that he does, in addition to the, I think the numbers this year are, uh, are evidence of that. I mean, uh, a 0.50 ERA in June is, is uh, historically unheard of. So uh, he's certainly doing special things. Um, I'm very curious to see how he ends I guess where his numbers are at the end end of the season, um, you know, as I was saying, he has the chance to do very, very, very special things. He's already doing incredible things, but uh, you know, come September, October, if his if these numbers are holding up, that's um, something uh, that the game's never seen before. It's um, it's 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 another level of excellence. It's uh, it's uh, it's all it makes you step back for a second and just shake your head. Yeah, it really does. I also have to say the thing that I'm also curious about besides how great he's been is how hard it's been for the Mets to see Francisco Lindor not be consistent because he has these stretches where he has a couple of games, maybe a week or two, you're saying, oh, wow, he's turning around. He's going to be great again. And then he goes, has like a two for 16 and he's slumping again. Like what do you take away from watching Lindor play these first two months, two and a half months of the Mets? Well, you know, I think the one thing you can tell even from afar is that he's um, he's just as frustrated at the inconsistencies as the fan base is, uh, you know, he had a very, very tough start to the season, picked it up considerably. Uh, I picked the stat up on the, on the Apple, I think from May 6th to June 5th. Um, he was, a you know, the regular Lindor that we're all used to OPS well into the 800s, 280 hitter, all that fun stuff. And his, his defense has been terrific. The leadership has been, everything is advertised. But, uh, you know, I think he followed up that nice stretch with a, a five for 40 or something like that. And, you know, at that point, you know, the consistency questions and the boo birds come back out. Uh, in June, he's been one of the Mets more productive hitters, uh, 256, 337, 500. His weighted runs created plus is actually second on the team in June behind, of all people, James McCann, which, you know, that's kind of been the story this season, you know one guy falls behind a bunch of guys pick you up and in Lindor's case, I mean, and the revolving cast of guys picking, you know, picking the slack up has been uh, astounding, but at least in Lindor's case, um, you know, guys have been there to kind of carry the team along. And as you were saying earlier, I mean, this, the, the spot that they're in coming up on the end of June, considering all the adversity they've gone through is just, uh, it's amazing. It really is. Yeah, it is amazing. It's also amazing that this team, especially in the middle of May, when all the offensive regulars went down, you're sitting there as a Mets fan, you're going, oh boy, this is going to be a rough month. They're going to have the June swoon. Seems like an annual thing for them since about 2016. But the bench mob has been the key here. They stepped up. You're getting big games from guys like Jose Peraza, McKinney, VR, Pilar. Like, how weird has that been for the Mets to see like these competent like bench options come up here as opposed to like some of the direct they've had in the past? Oh, I mean, for years we were conditioned to just say, okay, well, the Mets, they spent their money here and um, the rest is going to be a crapshoot. And and we were pretty much, you know, set in our ways like, oh, well, this is how it is. And then, you know, this past offseason, the Mets really made a commitment to adding 
you know, capable depth. And it's been a godsend. I mean, uh, anticipating the level of injuries that they face so far was impossible. Um, anticipating Billy McKinney or, or <laughs> yeah, Mason Williams in the starting lineup for a few weeks straight, all just as, you know, unpredictable. But, you know, guys stepped up. And I think over the last couple of weeks, you saw the wheels kind of fall off that um, that that wagon as far as uh, productivity. I mean, you know, it, it was a Band-Aid. It was the, the, the best Band-Aid that this organization's ever seen. But uh, I think over the last, um, I, like I said, over the last couple of weeks, you saw that kind of fall apart. And now the guys are coming back. Um, it, you know, ideally, it'll be a seamless transition. I think Wednesday night, um, you saw probably the best case scenario. The whole top half of the lineup was back together. And, you know, that bench mob will still be an integral piece, uh, an integral part to the to the equation as far as, providing that depth but now they won't have to be counted on to be such consistent providers like Kevin Pillar he might be forced out of the starting lineup but I couldn't think of a more capable more just you know a list bench piece uh at least you know at this point in the 2021 season than Kevin Pillar yeah for sure one guy I want to get your opinion on specifically is Jonathan VR who I think has added dimension to this team with his defense at third base where he hasn't played in a while but he's done very well there he hasn't seen the top of the lineup in me, I feel like I'm starting. I'm in a minority here. I feel like it's going to start shifting a little bit. When J.D. Davis comes back, do you think VR should stay as the starting third base or at least get most of the reps over there? I think they're going to – I think we'll see a lot of moving around. I think VR may shift into a uh, – I don't know if it's going to be a part-time third baseman because you still got to mix Guillaume in there. Um, between him and uh, – I should say between VR and Guillaume, you know – Guillaume certainly has a better glove than VR. VR's offensive contributions have been invaluable. And like you were saying, he hadn't played third base in such a long time. And he's come in and, you know, he's below league average. But with the way that he's hitting the ball, at least, you know, before he got hurt, I think he was putting up impressive numbers. I wish he had him in front of me, but I don't. But uh, it's been, you know, invaluable when, if and when J.D. Davis returns and if he returns healthy. Um, I guess all the clouds and questions regarding his injury and, and the time frame on when he could have been back or should have been back and the setbacks he's experienced. It's, you know, it's put the Mets in a less than enviable position of making things work. Um, I think if, you know, if McNeil is penciled in at second base, you know, you might have a rotating cast of a Guillaume VR and JD Davis when he comes back. I wouldn't even mind seeing Guillaume at second base, McNeil at third or in left when Dom needs a day off, and then you stick VR at third. You know, all these these capable options, um, it's never a bad thing to have, at least for a you know, team in the Mets position where they're trying to get the most out of a, a deep roster. Yeah, it certainly makes some sense. I also feel like the offense, also now that you have, we're recording on Thursday between the Brave series, the Philly series here, like Jeff McNeil's back, Michael Confora's back, he might have brand new back by the end of the weekend, so... All the offensive pieces starting to flow back in here. And beginning of the year, when they were all healthy, they were not really hitting, which I don't know you can attribute that to the baseball, the weather, so on and so forth. But like what like I think for me, the big thing is I want to see this group come together and start hitting it collectively because they've been pitching well enough. They need the bats. They want to make a deep run this year. What do you think about the offense? How worried are you about the groups that have not been hitting yet? I'm not concerned. I'm not overly concerned because you look around the league and you see that the offense is you know, it's coming in spurts and, and that could be the weather that could be 
just the, the funkiness of the last 18 months, um, guys finally finding their rhythm now. Uh, I think the, the absence of sticky substances is only going to increase the offense. But as far as the Mets, having that, you know, top, top-notch roster in place where this is the starting lineup that they built, that they had in mind, you know, hopefully they do something about the rotation because those, you know, the top three are great and Peterson's coming around, but you know, now there's holes because the injuries are, are, are hitting. There's going to be more, but as far as the offense, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get off track. <laughs> um, as far as the offense goes. Yeah. I, I'm not overly concerned because now that you're, as you mentioned, you're bringing the Michael Conforto's and the Jeff McNeil's and the Brandon Nimmo's back. It's going to change the dynamic of the lineup itself. It's going to offer, you know, your, your bigger hitters, your Alonzo's and your Lindor's, and it's going to offer everybody protection behind them, which over the last two months, they haven't always had. Um, I think it's going to change the approach of opposing pitchers. They have to attack guys instead of maybe dancing around the strike zone, maybe and not pitching around anybody, but you know, now they have to induce contact from say a, a Lindor instead of putting it just in the spot that he's going to be uh vulnerable and and it's going to kind of have ripple effects right down the lineup and i think that's going to have the most long-term effect as far as getting everyone back into a into a groove i think early in the season the the runners in scoring position that might have just been a kind of a product of everybody pushing expectations are really high um you know i i do feel that this team is going to come around and i think they've you know they've built themselves a really nice cushion so that if there are hiccups or a less than seamless time in transition between this bench mob era and the guys coming back, you know, there's some time, there's some wiggle room to get things right. And I think Rojas is, uh, Luis Rojas is probably right at the top of that list of uh, driving forces behind kind of keeping everyone motivated. Yeah, let's talk about him for a minute because obviously yeah. it's like his second year as the skipper. First year, you kind of write off because of the weird COVID year and he's getting the job in, Mar- in January because of the Beltron situation. <laughs> now we've seen him basically in action for a couple months. I mean, he still makes some decisions in game that I think are questionable, but you don't know because obviously he's dealing with half a roster, so he's done a good job keeping the ship afloat. So sure. if you were to write the book on Luis Rojas right now, like what would you say? What kind of manager are you, you making him out to be? Um, I will certainly concede that he's made some decisions that, of course, in hindsight, are questionable. Um, I think that every decision that has been questioned, the logic behind it has been there. You know, it's a gamble. And managers have to take gambles sometimes. Um, but again, that's only half of the manager's job is the is the the lineup construction, which throw that out the window this year. <laughs> uh, you know, that that's I think that's not even on the chart right now. Um the other outside of in-game decisions, it's keeping your team motivated. Like I was just saying on that front, I mean, you know, 13 out of 10, he's been terrific, outstanding just to keep these guys in the game and, and, you know, continuously charging forward with the amount of just obstacles that have been thrown in their way. That's impressive in itself. And I I think if the, if, if the San Francisco giants weren't doing such, amazing things out West. I think that Rojas would probably be a shoe in for national league manager of the year, depending on how the team finishes or both teams finish. I think he'll be in that conversation for sure. And as far as the, the in-game decisions part, as I was saying, yeah, he's made a couple of, um, I guess you can call them blunders, but I call him, you know, he gambled and lost. That's how I look at it. 
you know, you have to remember he hasn't even managed a full season yet. Um, as far as, you know, counting games, you have to, um, you know, there's going to be growing pains. And I know he's been a, a manager in the minor leagues for a long time. And, and he has the, the seasoning to, to know this game at the level that he does and kind of take it um, to the major league level. But yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not overly concerned with the, I guess the decisions that don't pan out. I'm more concerned with the the culture that he's built inside the clubhouse, along with the other veterans in the clubhouse. And I think that's been huge, but um, yeah, I like Louis Rojas and I think he is the guy for this job. Yeah. We'll see how they do going forward here. I also think the big, another big surprise it doesn't get talked about nearly enough because of all the bench mob stuff. The hmm. bullpen for the Mets has been very, very good this year. Cause I mean, we're used to years of having maybe two relievers that are good. And the rest of throwing Cassidy on the fire and they come in the game, but they have built a nice like arsenal of like capable guys who can throw hard, mix things up, different looks. So this what I think Sandy Olsen always wanted to have for a bullpen, but never really had the resources to properly construct. So what do you think about the Met bullpen so far? You know, there's inconsistencies there too, especially in, in recent weeks. Um, I think losing uh, the long depth in Robert Gazelman is really going to hurt them. Um, not really going to hurt them, but it's certainly going to put a dent in the approach that they've used especially with the back end of the rotation being sort of in flux. You don't know exactly how long you're going to get out of a Peterson or now a, a Tyler McGill. Um, I think losing Gazelman might kind of hurt that, that structure that was there, but you know, Trevor Mays rebounded very nicely after a really tough stretch. Um, Familia and, and uh, uh, Miguel Castro who have, you know, were both on terrific tears to start the year. They've kind of taken a step back. I think it's only a matter of time before they find their way. Aaron Loop's been terrific, <laughs> um, just outstanding in every way. And even, even Barnes, uh, Jacob Barnes, who was here for a little bit, and he's gone. He's in Toronto now. But, um, you know, the, it, like as I said before, it takes an entire village to do these things. And now you see NZD as stepping in, getting really big outs. You know, these are all going to be very, very important pieces to the puzzle. I think Lindor said it on, on Wednesday after the game. This is a puzzle, and now the puzzle is coming together, and it's really fun to see. But, um, you know, Edwin Diaz is the glue, and he's the one who's been able to just go above and beyond in keeping things in order, and he's given me multiple innings. I think Rojas has learned you don't use him in non-save situations <laughs> unless absolutely necessary, but when he's used correctly, he's one of the best closers in the game. He's the guy the Mets traded for in 2019, and uh, I think that – kind of brings everyone behind him into place. And if you had guys like Familia and May and Castro pitching up to their capabilities, I mean, you know, that's a back four that really can't be touched if they're all on their game. Yeah, absolutely. I think right now the biggest need to me, in my personal opinion, is just getting depth in this rotation because obviously losing Lucchese to Tommy John, you know, we didn't think it was a big deal a couple weeks ago. Now is, and Peterson's been consistent. This is also partially because all the debt they built sort of evaporated because Carlos Carrasco is still not back. Noah Syndergaard had a setback. Like, how important is it for them to go out and get a starter here? And who are some guys you think they would be looking at? Well, if it was my if it was my pick, and if Cincinnati's moving him, uh, I I the first guy I go after is Luis Castillo. Um, he's having a tough year in Cincinnati, but he is one of the top pitching talents in baseball. Uh, he's a free agent through 2024, I believe, or, or he hits the market in 2024. And, and you know, that's a guy who, um, when he's right, he is a, uh, you know, he's a game changer and he can absolutely solidify the back end of this rotation. Um, 
as far as his troubles this season, I think you give Jeremy Hefner and Jeremy Accardo and the rest of the Mets analytics staff you know, a couple of weeks with him. And I think that those will be straightened out um, right away. And that's not a knock on Cincinnati. They have a very, very good staff over there. But uh, just sometimes a new set of eyes is all it takes. Sometimes a change of scenery is all it takes. And, and yeah, he would be my pick. I think you have to go somewhere like Colorado and talk to them about John Gray or Herman Marquez, both very, very good pitchers. And, uh, you know, for a team like the Rockies who are out of it, it's something to, um, to consider on their end. I don't know what the asking price will be for any of these guys, but, uh, you know, the Mets said in the offseason that they really weren't willing to part with any of their top end prospects. And <laughs> that's understandable. The, the last regime kind of tore apart this whole farm system, but um, where the Mets stand now and where they can be in a few months, if they make the right moves soon, I think, you know, back to gambling, I think it's the risk that you have to take. And, you know, maybe you might see a, a Ronnie Mauricio get moved or a Brett Beatty get moved, but you know, if you're bringing in the right player and, and this is, I'd hate to bring in a rental for, um, for someone like that. Like, a it's a Jose Berrios. I believe he has another year of control outside of this year. That could be another option. Um, very, very great pitcher. You have to wonder what the twins are looking for. Um, you know, they have, they're going to have options. They're going to have teams who are saying, Oh, we'll take this, but you know, you're going to pay out the nose for it. And you know, if the, if the negotiations stall somewhere and say, well, this is our only option. You kind of have to consider it just considering how close they are to um, kind of reaching a goal after all the adversity. And, you know, I, it's not a position I'm, uh, I'm I'm happy not to be in the position that they're in as far as making these decisions. Yeah, I think if I was running a team, I think obviously I want to add like a starter who can give me innings back there because I know I don't have, I don't know when I'm getting Carrasco. If he shows up, great. If I, if he doesn't, that's, I need to have an option there. I think it's one thing I would look at. And the other thing I would consider here is add another arm to that bullpen. It's just because as you said, losing a Zellman hurts and another lefty would be ideal because Aaron Loop's the only one out there. I think you do those, those two things. I think you're in good shape in the National League East. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind a bullpen arm. Um, you know, earlier in the year, I would have said add, a, add an outfielder because you don't know what's going on with the Nimmo when his, his hand was, um, you know, there was, <laughs> it was pretty much indefinite. They had to wait for him to swing pain free. And at that point, it's like, oh, you have to start looking at outfielders. I think that's all changed now. I think McKinney coming out of a starting position kind of shores that up. Um, infield depth is fine. Yeah, I, I'd like to see pitching help. I'm curious to see if they do dip into the bullpen. I'm curious to see if they value um, a left-hander as much as they would a couple of years ago with the three batter rule. Cause you know, having loop out there and you know, that's, that's well and good, but you, you sort of need another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think the other thing to watch with the Mets is obviously yeah, at least is stunk for the most part. So that's why part of the reason why they've been able to maintain his league with this in half the roster, but I'm trying try to figure, start to figure out who the biggest threat is because after watching the Braves the last couple of weeks, it, I don't think it's them. And the Phillies are the Phillies. Do you do you think Washington might be that team that gives them the most trouble? Well, I think Washington. Um, I think they all have have the ability. Um, if they're all playing up to their capability, they are all very very good teams. Um, I think the Phillies are lacking in pitching, starting pitching and bullpen. I think the Braves are certainly lacking in bullpen. Uh, the Braves offense to me, that probably poses the most potential threat. If everyone's clicking there and I'm look, you know, you can look to the Albies and you can look to the Acunas and the Freemans, but if Ozzy Albies is hitting in addition to those two, 
that's a that's a um a formidable trio I, I really do um i enjoy watching the braves even the nationals i think they just won nine out of ten um if josh bell comes around if soto comes around yeah they uh, trey turner can, keeps on just having the uh outstanding under the radar seasons he's been having it's there's certain there's certainly going to be a uh a lot of competition. I think the Mets head into Wednesday. They came into Wednesday's games. Uh, they were in first and <laughs> Braves, Phillies and Nationals were all four games behind. So it just kind of gives a glimpse of how this division could shake out. I'm, uh, I'm very curious to see who else makes moves in the division. Curious to see whether Miami kind of throws up a white flag, maybe shop some of their veterans. Um, yeah, I, I'm I, I don't think it's going to be a, uh, a a runaway by any means. I think there's going to be a, a lot of action. If I had to pick one, it'd probably be Atlanta just because of the the experience. Yeah, it's a very fair point. I think it's going to be interesting to see them go down the stretch because obviously, like, they get the division. They're in a pretty good spot if they reach the postseason because then they don't have to deal with that wild card bot, like mess that they had in 16 where they win the one game. The West teams are going to kill each other in terms of that. And then you're sitting there and – you deal with the central team, you gotta have a path where you can potentially get to the NLCS and have to deal with only one of those three teams out west. So the Mets have a I think a golden opportunity if they take advantage of it. Oh, for sure. And I think that's where the trade deadline ties in. Like if they think that they can make a real, real push, I think all all, all your cards are on the table and, and you just make the best move it's for your organization at that time. Because bringing a a World Series to this fan base, to this organization, to start off this new ownership regime, it's uh, it's it's the chance to do something very special. After the last 18 months that we all went through as a society, uh, even more so, just, you know, I'm not sure if you're a hockey fan, but what the Islanders are doing now and how that fan base is just riled up. And, you know, I, I listened down my window last night. You could hear <laughs> multiple houses in my neighborhood. I'm on Long Island. And you can hear multiple houses in the area just absolutely going crazy. And, you know, if that happens with the Mets, forget about it. It's, um, you know, it's magic. And, and I think they have the opportunity to do that and keep on playing well. And then that opportunity could present itself. It certainly could, Tim. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I can be a follow social media. Keep up with, with your blog and your podcast. Uh, I'm over on Twitter. You could find me there. It's at Timothy R. Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R, like the moving truck. Uh, on that page, you'll see links to the Apple. Um, the, the domain name is a little lengthy because it's on Substack. So it's theapplenym.substack.com. Uh, again, you can go right to my Twitter page and you can find the links there. I share everything there as well. The podcast is simply amazing. That's on anywhere you listen to podcasts, but Apple, Spotify, uh, it's on Google, I believe. Yeah, Stitcher, all, all those all those uh, outlets. and. Um, yeah, I'm actually starting to do Mets Miners coverage over at prospects1500.com. So check that out as well. Yeah, certainly a good time you checking those prospects because that Brooklyn team has a lot of good ones. Oh, man, I'm still yet to get out there. I, I, tickets are a hot ticket. All things considered, it's really, really tough to find a ticket right now. <laughs> all right, Tim. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Mike. Anytime. All right, we are back here in the legal corner of the podcast. Got some big news to talk about from the Supreme Court NCAA case. Joining me today, our legal correspondent, Phil Ferrand is back. Phil, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Good to be back. 
Good to be back, and we are here after the big ruling of the Supreme Court ruling 9-0 against the NCAA. Do you want to refresh the audience of what we were talking about the last time we discussed this case? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we, are, as you said, we previewed this case uh, a few months ago now after the uh, oral arguments were heard. Uh, and um, essentially the case challenged the NCAA's ability to restrict what are known as education-related benefits. So those are things such as uh, um, maybe when you were in college, the, the university would have a program where, say, you did a summer internship, uh, you can get a stipend through the school. Or, the, or uh, you enter some sort of an essay contest with a monetary prize and you win. Things like things of that sort. Uh, those were prohibited by the NCAA for student-athletes. So uh, if, if a student-athlete did an internship and was otherwise eligible for the school stipend program, they couldn't get it. Uh, the case challenged that. They won at the district court, which is the lowest court level. They won at the intermediate appellate court, and now they won at the United States Supreme Court. So the NCAA, as of Monday, is no longer legally allowed to restrict those kinds of benefits. So uh, students can get those, they can get their stipends, they could get their book reimbursement, laptop reimbursement, whatever it may be. If it's related to education, the NCAA cannot restrict it. Yeah, and just to reset here, obviously this ruling came out on Monday, a complete sweep, 9-0 from the Supreme Court, and ruled in favor of the athletes. Uh, Judge Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. You got a chance to look at it. What's your big takeaway from reading what they had to say? So uh, the, the opinion's narrow, as, as I just described. It only relates to education benefits. The case had originally challenged uh, all benefits whatsoever, saying that you, know, you can't restrict athletes from getting paid. And uh, the NCAA actually survived at the lower court on that. But the way they survived is interesting. So they made a bunch of arguments uh, related to it's not anti-competitive. It's not. Uh, it's it, we're allowed to do it because, in the name of amateurism, and the only argument they made that worked for them is a strange argument. It's an argument that, in, by not paying our players, we're actually increasing consumer choice because now consumers have a choice between watching professional sports where the athletes are paid or amateur sports where the athletes are not paid. And if we play, paid our players, that that would no longer be the case. So there'd actually be less consumer choice. And that worked at the district court level. They, they were at, and at the intermediate appellate level. So the NCAA slipped by on that. Uh, the Gorsuch opinion acknowledges early on that that was the procedural history of the case and that that part of the case was not on appeal. But it seems to hint to me that if that part of the case ultimately did reach the Supreme Court in maybe a subsequently filed case, the court would have a much different view of that question than some of these other courts have. Because there's an issue as to whether, can I make an argument that I need to engage, I need to not pay my employees essentially so that I can offer consumers a choice of seeing unpaid labor. 
that's that's a that's a interesting argument when you extrapolate it beyond the NCAA. Could you know? I, I mean, I don't think any other job could argue that. I, I don't think your day job, Mike, could say, "Look, uh, we actually need to not pay you, so consumers can have a choice to shop at places that aren't where we don't pay the employees." That's uh, that's that's an interesting argument, and Gorsuch seemed to indicate that. He's not sure how that would play out if it went up. Now, you mentioned that the opinion was 9-0, and that's right. It was. But there was a what's called a concurring opinion, which is a, I agree with the result, but I would have gotten there differently or I have more to say. And that's what Justice Kavanaugh submitted. And his concurring opinion is just an absolute bloodbath for the NCAA. He, he makes the point that this, justification that we don't need to pay people to preserve the right for consumers to see unpaid athletes is is absurd and uh he would overturn it if and he urged uh essentially urged somebody to challenge it so that the supreme court would have an opportunity to overturn it and uh and that's where we we stand now so if i'm the ncaa yeah you 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 took a small loss here as far as the education-related benefits. But as I said a few months ago when I was on your podcast, uh, if I was the NCAA, I would – was it really worth it? Was it worth taking this case to the Supreme Court? Because now you are signaling to other plaintiffs out there, file a case. The Supreme Court wants to help you. And, and that's what's going to happen. They're going to get sued again and again it again and again. And this, this case is probably going to be back in the Supreme Court in the next five years. Yeah, I want to go back to that uh, opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, which is the more interesting point of this concurrency because he basically goes in on the NCAA. I think he used example of points. Hey, you don't go a rest, go a restaurant because the chefs love to cook or you don't go to a lawyer because they love the, the practice, the spirit of the law. And basically saying that the NCAA is violating antitrust laws by their model of being. Can you explain a little more about that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's more or less what I was just saying. Uh, the, the argument that the NCAA is making here, in the United States, we have antitrust laws, and the antitrust laws essentially prohibit businesses from engaging in anti-competitive behavior. And an anti-competitive behavior is in a, the NCAA saying, schools, you're not allowed to pay your athletes. So, for instance, if Ohio State said, you know what, we want to pay our quarterback, we, we, think, uh, we think if we pay people, we'll get better employees, that's not allowed. It's prohibited by the NCAA, and that is an anti-competitive arrangement by definition. So, how does that work over time? What, what ends up happening is, uh, in, in a typical case, that's not allowed. But here, the NCAA argued that you can't prevent us from doing that because it would limit consumer choice. Consumers would not have the option to watch unpaid athletes, people who are playing not for money but for the love of the game, as they put it. And Kavanaugh just uh, completely obliterated that logic with examples like you said, and it makes sense. I mean, could Burger King say, look, uh, we need to have the option – to offer consumers a, rest, a fast food restaurant where our employees work for the love of fast food? No, of course not. That, that would never, ever, ever be allowed. So why is it allowed in the context of the NCAA? As Kavanaugh said, the NCAA is not above the law. 
and, uh, and he's signaling there that, hey, give me a chance to overturn this, and I will. And I think Gorsuch did so in a more subtle way in the majority opinion by pointing out that, you know, this, uh, this issue is not before us today, so we, we say nothing about this question, uh, but he made a point that it seemed uh, dubious. I don't think he used that exact word, but that's how I read it. Yeah, I think in terms of what the NCAA has taken away from this out here, obviously they know that they're in trouble here because there are, like I'm sure more lawsuits coming. Is there anything they can do to sort of like give themselves more of a chance to get, like not get like completely beaten to a pulp by the courts down the line? You think something like putting in NIL legislation like universally would sort of help their case here? Yes. Uh, if I was the NCAA, I would swallow some pride here. I'd realize that I've got a Supreme Court that is hostile to me and my position. So my best bet is make a deal. Go and make a deal so that you don't end up in a situation where you can't regulate anything. and It's a free-for-all. And, and that could be the deal. NIL le- legislation could be the deal. Maybe, maybe that's a compromise. But go and try and make a deal with these players because someone's going to sue you if, if the lawsuit, for all we know, that lawsuit could have been filed today. I wouldn't be surprised. That's how strong of a signal that opinion was that, Sue, bring us the case, please. It was the Supreme Court begging somebody to give them another opportunity to weigh in on this question of can the NCAA justify not paying players on the basis of creating a market for unpaid athletics. Yeah. So if I were the NCAA, I'd I would get my deal-making boots on right away. Yeah, I think the NIL is probably the way you get around this because you can say, hey, like we're giving them an opportunity to make money like, on the side where they can sell their name, sell their image, they can make the video game, sell their license to the video game, make money that way, and, and sort of entice and say, hey, you know, the quarterback at Ohio State is more valuable than the quarterback at, say, uh, like Southern Mississippi. But at the same time, they both have the opportunity to make money as opposed to, hey, let's be a free-for-all where like Ohio State's paying their players directly. I know that's the road they want to avoid going down. Right, because if you get into the road where Ohio State and Alabama are paying their players, what you do is you solidify what's already slightly there in football, college football, where some teams win, the rest have no chance. But you completely obliterate the concept of March Madness. It no longer exists. Because you know that Duke and UNC and UCLA and all the basketball powerhouses are going to pay for the top talent. And, and they'll, all, they'll all be super teams, essentially, every single year. So if you want to preserve your ability to market March Madness, which, by the way, is made clear in the opinion, March Madness is the NCAA's most profitable venture, more profitable than even the college football playoffs. You need to stop to make sure these players don't get paid. And the way to do that is make a deal. And the NIL legislation is, in my opinion, the easiest way to do it. It doesn't cost the NCAA that much money. And it's not even going to affect that many players. Uh, I mean, you know, Mike, how many players could even make money off their name who are playing college sports? Not, not a ton. Only with the big stars. And, and for the most part, it's football. There's, there's the college basketball to the point with the one and done, how many college basketball stars can make some money when the, I mean, Zion was really the last one I could think of. 
Uh, you're more of a college basketball guy than me, but is there anybody playing college basketball now who you think could make big money on his name? Not right now. It's, all, it's usually the top couple of kids that come out of high school for the one year. If they get the Zion Supernova level, they become stars. But otherwise, it's like not a big amount of money there. Right. So to me, it's, and, and there's certainly not going to be anybody in any other sport. Uh, I mean, you, you may have heard in baseball, I've heard of Jack Leiter simply because he's Al Leiter's son. Otherwise, I never would have heard of him. And that's about it. And hockey and volleyball and so on and so forth. So it, it seems to me like it's a pretty easy way for the NCAA to get around this. But that there's a flip to that coin, which is does the college baseball player say, well, this doesn't benefit me. I'm not going to, nobody cares about my name and likeness. I want to get paid. So I'm going to sue the NCAA anyway. I'm not agreeing to any deal. And then, and then you run into a problem if that happens. But if you're the NCAA, I think they need to loosen their grip a little bit and start making a deal. Yeah, I think they do too. I think it's something we're going to have to watch it then down the line. And I think obviously, I think as you said, the, NIL model, like I think, is the easiest way out of this, and I think that's what's going to end up happening down the line. They're trying to pass the buck to Congress, make Congress do it for them, but they really should just step off on their own and do it. I mean, the NCAA has to regret what they did here, Mike. Yeah, they, they fought over education-related benefits. These are minor benefits. You're talking about, you know, a five thousand dollars stipend for a kid who takes a summer internship somewhere. And they fought it, and look at what it got them. It got them a Supreme Court decision that. It's foreshadowing their complete obliteration. Uh, So they got to learn from that and say, you know what? We're not going to have total control anymore, so let's get the best deal we can. Yeah, and to clarify one other point you made earlier about the football playoff thing, that's not even something the NCAA control. That's completely outside their system. The thing they control is March Madness. So if something's going to destroy March Madness, that's going to ruin their bottom line. And that's going to change the outside of college sports. You know it. So they need to get something done if they want to stay in the business. Right. And I think March Madness would be a most jeopardy again because the entire, the reason that people are into March Madness now is the Cinderella's. Everybody's watching March Madness for the Cinderella's. If March Madness becomes the 2010 decade NBA playoffs where LeBron James is in the finals every year, it's not the same. Yeah, it's not. Let's go. And that's, that's what's going to happen. You're going to have Duke and UNC and UCLA and so on and so forth with super teams every single year. Yeah, let's move on to the other big sports-like thing right now. It's not the legal area, but baseball could impact a CBA down the line, in my opinion. The sticky stuff situation, which to me, this thing, I said in the podcast before, it's so, so dumb what's going on here. What do you think about this? It's, I agree. It is so stupid. Major League Baseball, I've said this on your podcast before, they have a problem. And the problem relates to there's not enough offense in the game. So why isn't there enough offense in the game? Some people say it's analytics because the hitters are trying to hit home runs. That, that's, I, I don't agree with that. I think it's two very, very sim- three simple points, actually. One, the pitchers are better. Why are they better? The pitchers are better because teams have emphasized that, you know what, if this guy only has two pitches, but they're good pitches, I can use him. So they they built, as, to borrow a phrase from Kevin Cash and the Rays, a, a stable of guys who throw 98. And that's what teams did. So that improves pitching. And, and that was smart. For, for years, if you had a guy who threw hard, you would do everything you can to force him to be a starter. And a lot of guys burned out that way. 
So for the most part, relievers were guys who were failed starters. That's not the case anymore. Now there are people who they groom to be relievers. So that's number one. Number two is the shift. The shift has a It's been 10, 15 years now. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry to some of the listeners who might be listening, screaming, why doesn't, why doesn't Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton lay down a bunt? It's not going to happen. They're not going to lay down a bunt. They're not going to hit a ground ball to second base. And at this point, you just have to either admit that they can't do it, they won't do it, whatever it is, it's not happening. It's, it's been, how many years has this been now that we've heard the same thing about why don't all these big power hitters, especially the lefties, lay down bunts and they don't do it. So that's out of the question. The, the shift has hurt offense. But the third thing, it completely Major League Baseball's fault. They changed the ball for no reason. They, they were concerned that there were too many home runs, so they changed the ball this season, and now there's not enough home runs, and now there's no offense. So essentially, to summarize what I was saying, what you have is a situation where, okay, I got a pitcher who's throwing 98 miles an hour, and he's got a nasty breaking ball, and he can throw it for strikes whenever he wants. They're shifting me, so if I hit the ball hard on the ground, I'm probably out because I'll hit it right out of the fielder. So what are you going to do as a hitter? I'm going to hit it out of the ballpark. That's my best chance for my team to score a run is for me to lift this ball and get it out of the ballpark. Justin Turner is actually the, the brainchild behind this theory. He kind of realized it, and it worked for him. Let me lift the ball. And if I hit it out of the ballpark, we get a run because the chances of my teammates getting three hits in a row against the guy who throws 98 with nasty breaking stuff as well. And that was a viable strategy for the past five years because they had the ball that was jumping off the bat. Now they changed the ball to make it fly less through the air. So now you just get a bunch of lazy flyouts. If you even put them in contact. So it just, it makes no sense to me why Major League Baseball changed the ball. But instead of admitting that they made a mistake, now they're going after the pitchers and saying the sticky stuff is the reason that these guys are better pitchers. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. Every pitcher in baseball has been using the quote-unquote sticky stuff for three, four decades. Everybody knows it. And there's no rule prohibiting it. This isn't Michael Pineda when he was dumping power on the ball. This is material just to give you a better grip on the baseball. It's it's very stupid. It seems to be creating a problem where one doesn't exist. And to make matters worse, you do it in the middle of the season. How are you going to tell these pitchers who have been throwing for the past however many years using this stuff? Oh, you can't use it anymore in the middle of the season. It's stupid and it's dangerous. And uh, Mike, as I'm sure I don't know if you've touched it on on a podcast yet, but uh, Tyler Glass now he's got a torn UCL. He may need Tommy John surgery. That's still up in the air. And he says it's because they prohibited him from using sticky stuff. And his theory there is that I had no choice but to grip the ball harder in order to get a grip because I couldn't use the sticky stuff on the ball anymore. So I'm gripping the ball harder. I mean, if if you kind of simulate it right now, take your hand and squeeze like you're holding a ball, the harder you do it, you'll feel those ligaments in your forearm and your elbow contract and that's what happens and imagine doing that a hundred times pitch after pitch after pitch of course these guys are going to get hurt 
Yeah, it's funny. I actually do have so, a, a game use foul ball like here from the 2021 season. So I have like one I am doing, and you can feel that as it's happening. Like you just feel the when you're trying to tighten it because gripping this thing is not easy. No, and the harder you grip the ball, the tighter your ligaments get. So imagine doing that with that violent force of a pitching delivery. You're going to get hurt. So why not let these guys put this sticky stuff, so to speak, a little bit, obviously. I'm not talking about coating the ball or fit balls or anything like that. But get a better grip, and then allow, and then you can make your pitches without having to squeeze the ball with a death grip. Yeah, it's certainly it's, it's very it's it's just very stupid. It, I do not like doing it in the middle of the season, but I think it does. It's just it just screams like we have a problem. We're trying to do anything we can to fix it, and fixing the ball seems to be the fastest way to this. But I just think the. The problem here is obviously, A, the checks are very, very dumb because the way they do it now is like basically stop you on the field, check your hat, check your glove, check your belt. So if you were cheating, you could know where to put the, not to put the stuff in any of those three places. You could find a way to do it. And number two, like you're not getting that much of an effect in my opinion because they went to the point like, yeah, if you're using spider tack or any of these other things that they're using, that that could be a problem, but Sun, apparently sunscreen and rosin has been something that's been going on for years, and now they're saying you can't even use that, which is a big, big picture for using just to grip the ball, which is, again, MLB's problem. It's, well, I don't know why you wouldn't want your pitchers to grip the ball. It makes no sense. It, it really makes no sense. It, 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 it's crazy, and, and you're right. It, it, it's easy to get around. It, it's a stupid rule, and what ends up happening is, of course, these Sticky stuff checks are on the best pitches in the game. So uh, DeGrom's pitching well. He must be using the sticky stuff. He's not. Garrett Cole must be using the sticky stuff. He's not anymore. Now, were these guys using the sticky stuff in the past? I'm sure they were. Every pitch in the league was. Because it wasn't prohibited. Or if it was, it it was a situation. trying to think of a good analogy, but it's basically a situation where, yeah, there might be a rule on paper, but nobody's enforcing it. No, now all of a sudden you say, you know what, we're going to enforce it. No, I'm sure we're happy with that thing, situation where it's sort of a gentleman's agreement where, like, I'm not calling you out for cheating because if my guys are cheating and you're calling me out, then we're got problems. That's why I wasn't getting enforced ever. That's happened uh, recently. I don't know if you heard. Uh, Luis Rojas went on an interview with Carton and Roberts, and uh, they were. this was back early in the season, and they, and they were asking him, why didn't you do anything? Because Craig Kimbrell seemed like he had all this crap all over his hat. And you know he he kept dodging the question, but essentially what he was saying to me was, "Well, if I call out him, what about my guys?" Yeah, that's the that's the issue there. And I think also in terms of the sticky stuff situation, this is something I feel like it's dumb to do in the middle of the season, as you said, because it could have been what caused Tyler Glass not to get hurt. You don't you don't know for sure, but you can't rule it out. For me, it's one of those things where like, why can't you just do this in the offseason and say, "Hey." Where come up with one approved substance that you can use to grip the ball, but you can't use any of the other stuff? Like, why couldn't that have been the option? That, that that would work, too. That's fine. You want to do that? Do that. But if you want to get offense back in baseball, there's a couple of things you can do that are just very easy. One is go back to the balls that jump off the bat. Why do we need to use these new balls? I don't understand that. And, and two, though, and just ban the shift. I, I, I'm an advocate for banning or restricting the shift. I don't think there's any problem with it. I think, uh, you know, Mike, every sport has a legal defense as a penalty. In, uh, in 
basketball, you, there's what, three in the key. You can't, you can't have a big man just stand in the key. That's an illegal defense. In the NFL, there's a legal defense formation. Well, why can't a legal defense be a penalty in Major League Baseball? Yeah, push back on the ball slightly because 2019, what we had was just ridiculous where you hit a pop fly, was going over the wall. I think there needs to be a balance there with the ball, like where you can do that. But I think my solution is more restrict the number of pitchers you have on a staff because the way the staff's being used right now, you can carry 14, 15 pitchers and say, you know what, like, I don't, you don't have to go a third time through the order. Just throw as hard as you can. And then if you force these teams to carry, say, only 13, you have to push guys longer. They can't just max out 98 every time. And if there's a couple of ticks coming off, they have to go through the order and get more innings. Then you might have less velocity, a little more ability to make contact. That's my personal opinion. I'm fine with that, too. That, that's another solution that could work. But the, the key here is that all these solutions that we're proposing are things that are not going to get people hurt. No one's going to get hurt if they use a different ball or if they ban the shift or if they limit the number of pitchers on the on the roster. People are going to get hurt if you stop using this quote-unquote sticky stuff, especially in the middle of the season. It's, it's stupid. I, I think it was a bad decision by Major League Baseball. They recognize they have a problem, but that's not how to fix it. Even if... The pit, even if we're not just talking about the pitchers getting hurt, the, the pitchers have to control the ball. If they're not having they have less control of the ball, the hitters are at risk too if they're getting plunked more. Sure. Absolutely. Everybody's at risk. Nobody wins. And, uh, and you know, actually, I have the Yankee game on now. They're doing a sticky stuff check on Garrett Cole right now. Uh, so there's another one because he pitched a good inning. So we got to do a sticky stuff check. It's, uh, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. But you're right. It, it, nobody wins. And, and to the hitters who are coming out in support of this, uh, I know Judge and Stanton and the Yankees did. Uh, I mean, come on, guys. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not good baseball. And I don't know how you – how do you look your pitchers in the eyes, your teammates, and tell them, yeah, well, look, uh, you know, I don't want uh, people using this sticky stuff. But that's not That's not right. Now, what do you think also about these about the P. Alonzo concept a few weeks back about how like MLB he thinks MLB is doctoring the baseball based on the free agent classes coming up? I don't think so, but I put nothing past Major League Baseball when it comes to labor negotiations, and you know that I've, I've said that on this podcast a hundred times in the past eighteen months. I I think Major League Baseball is colluding against the players uh, to keep salaries down. So I put nothing against past Major League Baseball to change the ball based on who's going to be a free agent. I agree with you there because I don't think that this is a league where they've tried so hard to stop pace of play and all these things. I don't think they are that coordinated to convincingly like alter the baseball. It didn't even work at that point because the year they did it to suppress the pitchers, all the big pitchers got paid. So it's not like that actually worked. Like The thing I would be more curious about is if, they th- if this is in some way painting the sticky stuff here say, hey, Pitchers are why you can't hit. Hitters are mad at the pitcher for cheating, so are trying to divide the union and have a CBA negotiation. That would not surprising. Uh, not not at all, and that's and that is exactly what's happening. You're you're starting to get a split between pitchers and hitters in the union. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I think Alonzo's theory is a bit too far in the conspiracy theory for me, but nothing surprises me with Major League Baseball and the way they approach labor negotiations. No, and this is another thing where, like, even the thing that concerns me more is, like, in terms of negotiations, like, even if Alonzo is, like, completely off base, 
if there are a lot of guys in that in that PA room who have some degree of thinking, you know what, Pete's got a point there, then you have a big issue when it comes to negotiation because these guys do not trust each other. You have a long like break, like uh, gap to overcome and try and get a deal done. There is such little trust between both sides now that if Major League Baseball said the sky is blue, the players' union would would say no, it's not. It's green. That's how, that's how bad these two sides are. I, I would be very surprised. It's early, but I'd be very surprised if we have a season start on time next year. There is just no level of trust, and you're right. It's to the point where you've got guys like Pete Alonso coming up with conspiracy theories that, as outlandish as they sound, you can't even rule them out anymore because that's that's how baseball behaved in the past five, six years with the free agent classes. And, and you know, you got to look no further than I've said it a hundred times on your podcast. There, are, there are so many examples that took. Guys like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, they can't get signed until spring training's about to start. Nobody wants Garrett Cole except the Yankees, even though he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. There's so many different examples of people who should be and who should be sought after by all 30 teams in the league, and they can't get contracts. There's no, it's, I mean, like I said, Masahiro Tanaka's pitching in Japan. Uh, that, I mean. You, uh, you tell me, Mike, would you rather have Jamison Tyone or Masahiro Tanaka if you're the Yankees? And not for nothing, too. Another one to bring up there. Like, how is how is Taiwan Walker's only offer last offseason come from the Mets? Yeah, only offer guys the Mets. And that, it, 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 it's crazy. It, it's, just, it's crazy the way that these teams have behaved, that they've gotten away with it, and the union's fed up. And I don't blame them. There, there, are, there are a good, we've talked about it, ad nauseum now, but there's 15 to 20 teams who have no intention on competing at the beginning of every season. They, 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 they're not even in their wildest dreams that I think they're going to compete. Yeah, it's certainly for and that's not that's not how that's not how they, any professional sports supposed to work. And it's certainly a problem because in terms of this MLB, like they need to for their product get 22 off on time because it's just in terms of not even the impact on the fans is the impact on the players themselves because you have a shortened year in 2020, this wild year with the COVID where everybody's getting hurt because they're trying to jump back from 60 games to 162. Maybe shorten the product again potentially next year and then going back again to 162 and 23. Like, you're going to really mess these players up. Yeah, I would be surprised, Mike, to see, and I don't know if you've seen this data because I haven't. I wonder what the television ratings are of the season this year. I don't know because uh, I'm serious. I am too because there's a lot of teams right now that are just completely awful, like all falling off the face of the earth, like the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, the Orioles, the Pirates. You can name like seven teams, seven teams right now, are like 15 games in the 500 already. Oh, sure, and the sport itself is. I mean, and I said this is a diehard baseball fan. It's tough to watch sometimes because nobody can get a hit. Everyone strikes out uh, or hits the ground balls into the shift. It's, uh, it could be a boring game to watch at times. I bet you the TV ratings are down. Now, I bet you that what Major League Baseball does is they're going to come in and say, no, 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 we're doing fine. Look at the gate, the revenues at the gate. But I don't think that's a fair comparison because, you know, we, people in this country have been locked down for 15 months. Of course, they're going to go to the game. It's uh, something to do. But once that wears off, 
of the, the excitement of being back in the stadium. Uh, I wonder if gate revenues are going to be up. I, I haven't seen the data, but I would venture to guess that TV ratings are down this year. Yeah, I would certainly think so. Keep your eye on this stuff in the future. Phil, thanks again for all time. Really appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Thank you. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can uh, we can chat soon about, uh, about baseball or whatever um, and keep an eye out on the filings against the NCAA because I'm, I think a new case is coming. Holy moly is that. And now we're in 3D. And in 2D. Steph is taking us pro. He wants to take Holy Moly Major League. I'm taking things to a whole new level. You see what I did there? Everything went up a notch. They've blown it up. They've made it bigger and better. The holes are different. They're new. They're exciting. This hole doesn't seem jazzy enough. We're just lighting stuff on fire. No reason. Course design is bigger and better than ever, but the kind of athlete we have out here. You can tell they've been they're watching, watching the show. Home, yeah, and so it's show. fun to see them show up eager and ready to go. It's a playground for some of the greatest athletes in the world. Since the day we showed up, all we've done is laugh, and that's never stopped. <laughs> I love the physical violence of it. I love the, I love the wipeouts. <laughs> this year, it's better than ever with that. <laughs> And then, of course, I love coming back to hang out with this guy right here. I'm not going to even try to hide my excitement. Steph doesn't do anything small time, no. right? Everything Steph does is the best and the biggest. And that's what season three is about. What do you mean? Cash. Cash money. All right, we are back here wrapping up this week's podcast. A lot of fun stuff early on here. Wrapping up with the silliness of our favorite summer reality show here on the podcast, Holy Moly on ABC. Joining me as always, the Rob Riggle to my Joe Tessitore, Pete Considori is here. Pete, how are you? Holy moly is back. Yes. I am ecstatic. Three yeah. episodes in, love the show. Uh, like you said, our favorite summer reality TV show. We're not watching The Bachelor. We're not watching The Bachelorette. We don't care about those things. We want some mini golf, and yep. I'm excited. Extreme mini golf. We have to clarify. I apologize. I take it back. Extreme mini golf, which in this season, they're trying to go professional. They are trying to go pro. And I can't forget the title is Holy Moly 3D in 2D. Can't, can't forget the distinction. You're right. 3D in 2D, right? Um, 3D, I guess, because it's the third season 2D because you're not seeing it in 3D. Uh, I feel like Riggle had something to do with that kind of naming that, that, uh, that naming because Riggle was, you know, he has all those really cool extended titles that they've had you know for the specials that they have at the end of the year and stuff so i think i think riggle is the uh is the culprit for that one yeah and abc as people around here figured out here it's the game show network like if you check this on lab it's all game shows where it's like press your luck whether it's uh hundred thousand dollar pyramid but this thing is its own category it's so fun we covered it before and i gotta say like they i think hit a peak in season two they built right off what they did in season two and kept it going in season three i've been enjoying the ride so far yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think the peak was season two. Season three, I don't want to say is lackluster because I still enjoy the setup. I still enjoy what the show is about. Um, but we'll get into a little bit too later in this in this uh, discussion. But, you know, it, it got a little stale by season, by episode three. I'm going to be honest with you for me. Um, but like you said, I mean, the, the, this has taken off very in a very good trajectory, right? Season yeah. one was good. It was like, oh, this is a, this is a nice little concept. We're going to mix Wipeout with mini golf. Um, get Joe Chesator to, to announce it like it's an actual thing and get Rob Riggle to do color commentary because he's a comedian. And it's a great, it's a match made in heaven. I've said it 
time and time before probably those exact words on this podcast. Um, and then we have season two and they just kick it up a notch. Yeah. The funniest part of season two, in my opinion, was at the end when they had the last hole and they were bragging on it that they're yeah. like, we didn't have money in the budget. They make like the squeaky wheel noise as the pyramids are, 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 are uh, going around and around in circles. And they're like, this is, this is what we have. Um, and it's funny, you know, we're at episode three, no tease at the final hole yet. We don't know what kind of final this is going to be. We've seen some holes that they haven't mentioned before, and we've had some speculation in the past when we talked about season two, like, oh, we saw this hole during a teaser or something. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of final they do for this season. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with what you mentioned so far is I think the thing you're talking about with these three episodes, they're good. The comedy is still funny. I think the issue you might, you might have is that they have not, they've used basically the same batch of holes all three episodes. So it's a bit repetitive in that sense. I get what you're saying because the holes are fun the first time you see them, but like, I think the thing that works so well for season two was that we had a lot of variety early on where it's like, okay, you're stopping here. Then you're going here. You're going here. You're not getting the same batch of like six every episode. We had pretty much identical batches every episode to this point. I know there's something they haven't shown us yet, but I would like if they mix things up a little more earlier. Well, that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about there's not some they haven't shown us yet. Maybe those are the holes for the final. And I don't want to watch, let's say, 10 or 11 episodes which i think was the run of season two and i, I could be wrong it might yeah. have been a little longer but i don't want to watch 10, 10 episodes of the same six holes every single show right yeah. now granted every person runs through those holes differently um but i just i felt like season two had so much more yeah i i don't know if it's because they're holding off and they want to show newer holes later on in the season but when they pan out and show like the whole miniature golf course to me it looks smaller yeah. To me, it looks like they've done less holes. A lot of repurposing of holes, yeah. which we'll get into. But also, I there's like two holes on there. I'm like, oh, those are new. I'm like, that's it. There's only two more new holes. Like I felt like season two, every other episode, I was getting maybe two new holes. Yeah. Um, even if they were repurposed holes and they just put more flair on it, there was just so much. Now, I don't know if that was a a financial thing to say, okay, the final was crap when it came to what kind of hole we use we need to put money into the final so we can't put money into all the holes that we have um you know rob riggle and joe testator were always making fun of like things breaking down in season two so maybe they said all right instead of putting our money and putting as many holes as we can let's put our money into holes that will work the entire season without having to you know use finances to to fix them throughout the season and it could have been a covid thing could have been a COVID thing where, you know, everything was down. Every Everything was was um, downsizing. Enough budget for everything, yeah. right? So ABC was like, look, we can't give you as much money. This is what it's going to be. So I hope that we see new holes. I hope that we see a final that is still good. I mean, I enjoyed the season two final, even though the hole was a little lackluster. It was still a pretty hard hole to, to hit a hole in one in. Um, so we'll see. I like the hole so far. A lot of repurposing, though. Yeah, there's a lot of repurposing. I know. I do feel like my one complaint is there were some fun ones in season two that they didn't bring back because I said, I said, oh, we're gonna sort of innovate and make new ideas, and like there were some that I I loved in season two, which I was disappointed we did not get back. Like the one that I believe is not coming back. Was the point is like Uranus is not coming back. They went with the Pecker instead as their uh, joke as their. Uh, like P like, like uh, PG thirteen joke hole. So I disappointed in that one. I feel like the jokes don't lend themselves as well as they do on Uranus. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't think that one's coming back. I think that was a I, I don't know why. I thought that was a great hole. Maybe maybe ABC got a little bit of flack on that because of 
of the FCC, yeah. right? I mean, obviously they're not saying anything wrong. That's FC, not FCC regulated um, because you're not saying any bad words about it. You're calling the planet what it is, but maybe the innuendos got them in trouble. I don't know. Um, don't know how different the pecker is when it comes to, the- <laughs> to be honest with you, but you know, I think ABC is just trying to try new things. I, I just didn't understand why they had to get rid of holes that were already established. Yeah. Right. So like, I didn't think the the hole where they shock you was going to come back because yeah. that's a health hazard. Yes. Um, maybe the ones where they light you on fire as well. Yeah. I didn't think was going to come back. But like things like, you know, Uranus, um, the one with the hot dogs. Yeah. Stuff like that. I thought it was going to come back and go, okay, well, we're just adding to what we have. And we'll talk about repurposing, I'm sure, in a minute. But uh, Double Dutch Courage just keeps getting stranger, funnier and funnier <laughs> as the seasons go on. I mean, it was just Dutch Courage. Then went to Double Dutch Courage. And then um, to, to not bury the lead here, uh, they go to Double Dutch Courage and Fuego. <laughs> the whole thing's on fire. Yeah. I just want to see because like that, that's my one of my favorite things. They always come up with ways to make that hole more extreme. You know, it's just putting through a windmill. First season, because the first season you run through the windmill. Second season, you're running through two windmills and more blades. And then the third season, the windmills are on fire. So I don't know how much further we're going with this. Like, what's next? We're going to have, like, a tsunami's, like, trying, like, splash you, like, water shooting you out of the way, the uh, way the last time. I have to say that makes me interested for season four if they get re-upped because I want to see what Double Dutch turns, Courage turns into next. Well, season four, I think, is in the can already. They, they shot three and four back-to-back. So I think that might have been part of the oh, thing with the oh. budget. So they might have had to repurpose some of those holes like after they filmed three. So maybe that, well, if that's the case. Maybe that's why we're not seeing as many holes. Maybe they had two seasons to work with, with one kind of set. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you have two seasons, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And if they're, if they're filming two seasons at once and they're not going to build two separate sets with all new holes for every season. So maybe that's why we're not really getting the variety that might kind of come back and bite them in the butt a little bit though, because the whole point of Holy Moly was to see these extreme holes that were different and, and we want to see every season something different. If they're doing that back to back and simultaneously, I don't know how much variety we're going to get. Yeah, I think it's a matter of them just spacing them in the episodes better. I think we'll the sequencing gets better. I think we'll, we won't we won't mind as much. It's the fact that we've got basically like nine holes in three episodes is I think it's been the issue right now. Yeah, that's that is the issue for me. Again, it got a little stale. Again, love the commentary. If Ro, if Rob Riggle and Joe Testator were not there, I, I probably would get very tired of it very quickly. I mean, I watched Wipeout the original series with, uh, I think it was Hammond from Top Gear. Yeah. And it was just boring. Yeah. I hate to say it. It was boring. I liked them better on Top Gear. And just the way that they formatted the show with all the um, interviews in the beginning, it's just like, I, I can't watch this. So Rob Riggle and Joe Testator and also their graphics and how they make holy, you know, extreme mini golf seem that that's what's keeping it entertained for me. So I'm just, I'm hoping to see a couple new holes maybe in the next few episodes. Yeah. I, one thing I also think is funny about this show. I think people who are like watching the show since I would say you don't even really season one, but season two will enjoy is like the sort of ongoing storyline. They have the meta story going on here where Steph Curry is sort of remember season one. He was the golf pro where he was hitting shots on the course. Then season two, he was building the holes for them. And like, he had this secret hole, which we found at the end of the finale. Yeah. Now season three, he's basically says, I'm going to turn the golf mini, extreme mini golf pro. And then we see he's basically playing the curb enthusiasm version of Steph Curry's complete looney tune. And it's so funny watching Steph show up and they use him. I think much better than they did in season two. Yeah. They're definitely using him a lot. I mean, season two, they used him mostly in cartoon form. Yeah. I don't know if it's because he just wasn't available. So they just used his voice. It was a lot easier to, you know, track a voice than it was to film him. Yeah. I do think they're using him better. 
I think Steph Curry needs to be a little looser though. I feel like he's still a little uptight with the whole acting thing, right? Yeah. He just, he looks a little tight. He looks a little like, Oh, we're just reading from the cue cards. Uh, every, not everyone's an actor, right? Not everyone yeah. can just read lines uh, naturally. So I'm not bashing him on his acting abilities, but this is a funny show. And I don't think he would do anything to jeopardize his NBA career by having fun on a, on a golf show, on a mini golf show. Right. I would understand if it was something that, you know, he has, he wants to make sure he's not saying the wrong thing to make sure his NBA career is not jeopardized or he doesn't have a PR issue. But with this show, I don't, I don't think there's an area where he could have a PR issue. It's extreme mini golf. Yeah. You know, they, they just did something with, other NBA players, it seems like the NBA or as a whole, or at least the team he's on is fully on board with this. Yeah. So have fun with it. Just enjoy it, you know? And I think that would just make it maybe a little bit better on the acting side, because there's a lot of things. Every time someone wins a hole, you know, the first episode, he's like, this is special for you. I don't say this to anyone. And he looks off camera and goes, who do I say to an ex? Like, it's like stuff like that. That's, that's I, really dry humor and really funny, Yeah. but it, it seems a little forced. Like, Steph, like, have have some fun with it. It's okay. Like, it's an extreme mini golf show. I think they're directing him that way, to be honest with you. I don't think he's, like, doing this job acting it. They're like, yeah, like, act like you're reading off the cue card. Like, I think he's making too obvious he is. I mean, it's a possibility. It it really is a possibility. But we also have to give credit where credit's due in the way that, you know, he's not an actor. He's a basketball player, a really good one at that. So, who knows? Maybe he's just not comfortable acting and reading lines like it's natural yet. You never know. Yeah, I mean, season one, they had him there when they were doing, giving away the, the plant jackets, and, like, he's there every time, which obviously they can't do that now. He's playing NBA season, so they say, you know, we'll just get in there for a day or two. We'll film all these different takes, at the, put him on the big screen. I do think the fu- the funny part is him trying to be sort of, like, I don't know if you're a big Curb guy, Curb Enthusiasm, where Larry David plays a bizarre version of Larry David. It's something doing with Steph. He's basically playing a twisted, like, crazy version of himself. I think that's funny. Yeah, no, he definitely looks like he's losing his mind. <laughs> Every episode is like, we're going to build 10, holy moly, full 100,000 capacity stadiums yeah. for one hole each. Like, it's, it's definitely funny. I think the concept is hysterical. Yeah. Uh, you know, back back to the LED screen. They have a big LED screen on each hole. Maybe that's where their budget went this year. Yeah, yeah it might be where it went this year. But I also think they've had some fun. They did have, use some of the budgets on creative ways. I mean, in terms of the on-screen product, I think – the new graphics are funny because if, I don't know if you ever see what they put the two golfers head to head on the side of the screen. If you ever pause and read and read the actual graphic, it's so funny because they just like put so many jokes in there. You don't catch if you're watching in regular speed. And then at the end, they gave the best decision they made is getting Rob Riggle the Telestrator because that is so funny because it's like a serious sports thing and he's like having fun with it. Yeah, well, that Telestrator, the only thing that bothers me about it is it seems rehearsed and it seems yeah. post-production Telestrator, not live. Yeah. Right. Obviously, this is not a live show. Yeah. But they could record the Telestrator live while they're announcing live. Yeah. And to me, it looks like it's it's very quick, yeah. right? If you ever look at it, sometimes it's live with, with Rob, but sometimes it's not. It's just very quick, like a very quick frowny face or something like yeah. that. So that's the only critique I have for it. But giving them a Telestrator, best thing ever. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, the Telestrator was good. I also like they continue to do these funny things where, like, you know that they're just, like, being bad intentionally production-wise just to make fun of some of the golfers and whatnot. Like, the first episode, they had the very tall golfer. They, they cut his head off, like, during yep. the interviews. Just that, that was clearly on purpose. And stuff like that they just do because they're like, hey, we're not a serious show. You're going to have fun here. And this, that was just funny seeing stuff like that happen. A lot of shows do this. And I, I used to say this about The Office a lot. I still do because I love that show. My, my favorite TV show, The Office. You have to, you have to like 
feel out the network first, right? You have to kind of see what you can get away with, what you can't. You have to kind of be good in those jokes and you have to make sure that you're doing the right thing to make sure you get re-up for seasons to come. Then when you start getting after past season two or three, let's say you get to season four five and six, you start to see those jokes coming in a little bit, you know, coming in more hot, right? Yeah. I feel like this is still their feel out. I still think they're trying to see what they can do, especially with this whole, the pecker, what they did with Uranus, all that kind of stuff. I think they're still trying to figure out what they can get away with and what they can't. And once they figure it out, they're just going to go all out for season four or five. Cause if they already filmed season four, you know, they don't know what the network's thinking. Um, I'm sure the network sees the season prior to it going out to TV, but I think we're going to see something pick up if they go for a couple more seasons. If they go to 10 seasons, let's say, let's say this really blows up and this is like an every year thing, like America's Got Talent. It's just like the new game show. It's mini golf extreme. People are getting smacked by flaming windmills and people are laughing and it's funny. I feel like by season six, you're going to hear it's going to be the funniest show ever. Yeah. Off the walls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I also love my favorite like meta commentary they did in the whole thing was when they first introduced the ho ho hole, the Christmas themed hole, and and Joe Testora has a flashback. He's like, "Hey, we've done this before," and they flash back to the previous iterations of the hole. And Robert was like, "Nah, I don't remember this at all. This is completely yeah. brand new." I just thought it was so funny because that's just that really making fun like, of the audience. Yeah, this, this seems familiar to me. Like the whole setup, like yeah, the, the pole kind of. Uh, he was like, Joe, and, and then you just see Rob. He goes, he does a little flashback, and they just sh- they show Polcano, like they yeah. show it. And he's like, Nah, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This is brand new. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that is funny. And speaking of the holes, let's do our annual Disney. Let's have a three-hole draft in terms of, like, the holes they've seen so far. And it's a couple we know are coming back that you haven't seen yet. But in terms of holes you want to play, which one are you taking first? Just for nostalgia, Double Dutch Courage and Fuego. <laughs> just because it's on fire now. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I... Just for nostalgia, I'm just going to put it out there. Just Double Dutch Courage and Fuego will be the first choice for me. Yeah, that, that's a good choice. I think for me, the one I saw immediately, and I was like, ooh, I want to do this one. The King Parthur's Court, the one with the jousting, because that's such an original idea. It's so funny. And, like, the Wipeout is, is a lot of fun. I do like the idea there. Plus, like, you can beat that hole. We saw in the last episode where the, the third, go- third golfer got there and said, you know, I'm just going to stick the shield. I'm not going to try and knock him off. Like, and that seemed right. to be a strategy to get through the hole. Yeah. So no. So King Parthur's Court was going to be my number two. Yeah. Um. Just to transition there, King. It, it, like you said, an original idea. It doesn't look like it was repurposed because I don't know what kind of mechanics or where on the set that hole is. That might have been a brand new hole in. You know, maybe they used some the green for it, but they had to add mechanics to it. It doesn't look repurposed. I love the running jokes of like the animals. Like there was a dolphin in the court <laughs> last episode. Yeah. And, and Joe Testator is like, I don't understand why there's a dolphin. And Robert was like, was there not dolphins in the medieval ages? Yeah. <laughs> and they just went back and forth about that. And I, that, It's stupid little stuff like that that just makes it enjoyable, makes it such an easy watch. It, that Those 45 minutes go by like that because it's you're just enjoying it the whole time. Yeah. So King Arthur's Court, hole number two for me. Yeah, okay. So where are you going for your second hole? Where is your hole number two of, of your picks? Yeah, that's, that's number two. That's oh. my second pick is King Arthur's Court. So I got Double Dutch and Fuego for first. Then I got number two, uh, King Parthur's Court. Yeah, I think number two for me is the the core on the cob hole. It's like basically another version of hole number two. Although I think the mechanic is funnier where you have the corn popping and you're getting like smacked with a corn thing as you're trying to run run down the course avoid getting hit. I think that's funnier than the uh, hole number two mechanic. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think the whole number two mechanic is still good. I, I like that they brought it back. That's another hole that I think was good. I like that they repurposed hole number two to have murky water instead of just clean water. Yeah. Give it that whole like sewage look, you know. Yeah. But the the popcorn one is is pretty funny. Yeah. I, I that was gonna be my number three. So to transition to pick number three. <laughs> uh that, that the I remember the first one they 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 showed. I think that girl was like, I can't do it. Yeah. They were like, I I can't, she, I can't go. Yeah. yeah need to see someone go first so they just had to like jump into the pit yeah popcorn kernels yes um airbags just exploding in front of your face as you're running as fast as you can it has to be the funniest thing i've seen on that show plus i think i've seen two people beat that so it's one that i can actually beat yes. if I, because yes, it's not impossible it's not impossible like the holy matrimony one like it's impossible because you're running on the track and the ring is spinning it's like i think there's no way anyone get through that this season yeah, you know what? That one, I think you can get through it if you don't run full speed on the track. Because I think what the problem is, is the timing. Yeah. I don't think it's the full on, you know, sheer distance. Sorry, it was couldn't think yeah. of the word. Distance between the track, the ring, and the cake. I think if people don't go full speed on a track that's already moving forward, you know, if they just like, wait a minute. And then when they see it's their opportunity, go jump at the right time. Cause then again, they're running on this treadmill esque track. They forget that they have an edge coming up quicker than what their body would be used to if they were just running. Cause it's moving forward with them. So they usually just try to jump right when their foot's coming off the track to begin with. Yeah. I think um, So I think it, it's beatable. We probably see one or two people, but I don't think it's going to be a, like, I mean, even ho, 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 for some reason, we only saw one person be able to grab onto the thing and, and stay on. Yeah, well, I think ho, 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 the pro- and I like that hole. I think it's fun to play because I like the idea of like shooting it up there and having the three different tracks of like where you can land in terms of like nice yeah. and naughty or down the chimney where you get to shot the hole in one. I think the problem with that is that they put you farther away from the pole with the Santa's sleigh zip line because. Well, the reindeer. The, ra- the reindeer slow you down. And then, like, you're kind of bending backwards as you're trying to go for the launch. And, like, your legs are hitting it, your arms aren't so sliding down the pole. So you have to get that jump right if you want to hit it. Did you see that that hole is repurposed for the, what was it, the the something, the, the agony of defeat? Yeah. I think it is? Yeah. So if you look closely where, where it's the, the balls same, come same, out. Same green. Right. Same green where the balls come out for um, ho, ho, hole the ski slope is right there. That's where they put the shields with the different feet. And then that's where they know pole position. They put the ramps. Yeah. Um, again, might be a homage to not having budget. I, I don't know. Yeah. So, or just try and be efficient and say, well, we have this space. We could do something with it. Let's repurpose it during yeah. the season back and forth, even sometimes the same episode. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I did, there's an article about that. I mean, Andy Denhart, reality blur interviewed the EP of the show. And he asked him talk about stuff like that. I said, Hey, like these two holes are the same green. And it's like, you know, we could make a different green for it, but are people really going to notice the green of these two holes or are they going to notice a completely different hole obstacle somewhere else? We decided to put our budget there as opposed to let's make an entirely separate green for this hole. It makes sense. I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. If, if you're trying to be efficient and say, we're going to spend money here versus here and still get a whole out of it. Fine. I mean, I, I I'm a continuity nut. So when I look at these things, I'm like, hey, it's the same hole. Like yeah. if I'm watching a movie and like someone puts a drink down and then the next cut the drink's gone, I'm like, hey, where'd the drink go? Like I'm that's just the way I am. So I tend to pick up on these things a little too too quickly. Yeah. So that's why I kind of threw it in there. I can only imagine when you've been like watching Superman for a quest or a piece and they kept using the same shot, Superman flying about eight times. 
Yeah, I'll be honest with you, not familiar with the film, but I'm sure if I saw it and there was something that was repeated over and over again, it would bother me. Yeah, you would. This movie's really bad. Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I do think in terms of holes you didn't mention here, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the pecker, and that seems to be one that they're trying to shove down our throat. Is it, do you like the mechanic of the hole? You know, I'm not. I'm going to, if you don't mind, after I answer the, the pecker question, I'm going to tell you a hole that I think they're shoving down our throats a little too much. Yeah. Um, the the mechanic just seems too difficult yeah i'm not saying that it's not achievable but if you get on this this woodpecker's beak yeah there's nothing to grab onto it just seems too much yeah i'm not saying that they should make it easy for the contestants i'm not saying that at all but you have to make it feasible so that someone does it yeah right it's doable but the timing again has to be impeccable no pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. The issue, the issue. Like you have to be so good at timing everything. The jump onto the beak, when the bird is going to go back toward the back feather, the plume that they have to grab, how to put your feet and grab. I mean, it has to be perfect. Um, I would have rather seen the hole where you have to ride the bull for yeah. however long. Right. Yeah. I feel like with that, at least it's just hold on. It's, you know, and that tells your ball position. I like that a lot better than the pecker. Yeah. The problem I have with the pecker is more like the way that the thing is in the pecker and the feather got to grab on the pecker's head. Basically, the role there is, okay, there's this bot, giant peck, like uh, pecking bird head. It goes back and forth. You have to jump on the head and grab a feather all the way in the back. If you cannot, you lose the strokes. But the way the thing moves is it moves very slowly. And by if you're able to get on the pecker's head, which is the bigger issue. If you can get on there, by the time you're able to get there, the thing is going back down. You're falling down with it because of gravity. So like, you have yeah, no chance. It, it seems like contestants have to just go full send and just do it and yeah. die for it. Like, I, I just, I don't know how else they could do it. I think a lot of these contestants are going into it. I'll be conservative, but I feel like with this hole, you can't. You just have to go for it. Yeah. So, so what's the only thing, I, what's the only thing they're shoving down our throats? The freaking fishing one. Yeah. Because it's sponsored. Yeah, takemefishing.org. So every episode because it's sponsored by takemefishing.org, I think it is. That's an actual website. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a, yeah. It's officially sponsored. It's the first hole in the sea in, in, in all of Holy Moly Seasons to be sponsored by an outside company. Yeah. Right? So is this going to be a thing where every single episode or every other episode, we're going to have to hear how takemefishing.org has sponsored this hole? Yeah. And let's be honest, the hole, horrible. Yeah, it's bad. Horrible. Yeah. It's just these fish going back and forth with, with water cannons while you're running. I would have rather had the old one where it was just the balls with the water cannons or whatever it was. I mean, this is a repurposed hole that it's, it's definitely a, it's, got funded by takemefishing.org. It's the same mechanic as the rubber duck hole. That's what it was. Uh, rubber duck. Yes, excuse me. I yeah. was saying, but like, it, why, why? Yeah. The yeah. rubber duck hole, I think, was a little bit better. Yeah. I don't know if it's because the sponsorship is bothering me. Yeah. You know, and like every other episode now, we have to hear takemefishing.org. You know, oh, oh, and Rob's like, and and they make fun of it too, which is yeah. fantastic. Rob's like, what's that? What's that website? I wish there was a website I could go to. You know, they they definitely make it known that they have to read a sponsorship. Yeah, which is perfect for me. I think that's hysterical. But like, I wonder what the contract deal is. Yeah. I wonder how many episodes have to feature this whole now. I hope it's not the majority. I hope it's at least only half, because I can I can I can understand half. Yeah, I yeah. can understand. We're going to give you money to build a hole. You got to feature us in half the episodes, five out of 10, 12, like know, six out of 13, seven, seven out of four, you know, 14 or 13. Fine. 
But if it's going to be like every episode and then like only a couple that don't feature it, I'm just going to get mad. Yeah. Because the whole's not even good. Yeah, I will. I think also the ones I'm not a big fan of, I don't like the the one, like the, the one where you're the ski lift hole, I think the acne defeat one where you have to jump off the chair and dive into the water. I like the diving hole version much better when you have the judges. I think that's a COVID yeah. issue where you can't have the three celebrities on site. But I think that one I don't, not a big fan of. And the other one that, Turfing USA, I'm kind of met on because the surfboard mechanic is kind of cool, but like at the same time, it's like I don't think they're gonna use it. They're gonna use it very often. I feel like that's gonna be one of the ones they only use like four times. Yeah, that's that's going to be the the shock one of this season, I think. Yeah. Um, the shock one was a health issue. Yeah, and I think found that out pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, however, I I don't see this. You know what they could have done? The only hard part about staying on that surfboard is the stop, and then they hitting you with a water hose. Yeah. They should have made it so it was easy to stay on the, the surfboard, but there was other things you had to get through. Yeah. Right? Maybe a moving platform with things you have to get around as the platform moves. Make it a little bit more interesting than just watching someone going straight for 30 seconds. Yeah. That's my gripe with it. Again, might have been a budget issue. Maybe they don't have that kind of money, and that's what they could come up with. And, you know, they they, they literally blew their entire budget on that huge wave made of, you know, whatever it's made of. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I also look. I do think Kobe is also a part. Is also, I do, I do miss having this, those holes. The celebrities are there, just like on one hole helping right. out. Like, I well, like. Here's my question: Was COVID an issue because they still had all these people packed in? Well, the, the, like, the audience just, footage was. There's a lot of that was pre-used footage. They said it was. I said in the, the credits that it's footage they used in previous seasons. There's only a couple of people actually there. Really? Yeah, they reused some of their audience footage from like season two. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that because there was a lot of holes where. I don't know if they – I'm trying to think now. Because you, you see, like, the actual, like, final holes, like, when they're, like – especially, like, when Steph's on the big screen, there's, like, nobody around them. They never you show sure? you – I thought there was people on the side of them on they, the bottom. Like, they, I, I thought that, I saw that, last that, episode that, that, on being Parthers putt. Well, the art – well, that's all, like – that's all your their paid extras with like the the people in the costumes, but they said like they no no not the people in the costumes like when you're when you're when they're standing at the hole every single time I thought there's people there yeah from what I read in that article also he said they had some there to get create okay. some sort of atmosphere but like okay. it was a very so small number for that last hole maybe it's for that last they, hole they bring they bring their extras to that last hole so there's a bit of an atmosphere at the yeah. final hole yeah yeah but it's huh. not it's not as many as there usually are so like it's tough when you. Like like last season when we had John Lovitz doing the uh, pirate chip hole, I thought that was fun. We can't you can't do that with COVID. It was a hard time getting, getting the corrupt then, celebrity to stay there. Yeah, I wonder then if when they were filming this, if any of the finalists got COVID and couldn't come back for the final. Well, they apparently had to quarantine everybody and they keep them in hotels and they're not on the course. Oh, so they they took all of their contestants and, and put them in a bubble unless they lost. Pretty much, I think you lost. You got sent home. But if you're in a bubble, if you home. But if you're stay, if you win, you stay. However many, because I'm sure, because it's a pre-recorded show. I'm sure they shoot every day. Yeah, they shoot every like, day. It's not, it's not something they're doing once a week. You know, live. They they could probably get through half a season in a week. Yeah, because what from what the article said also, they like film like certain holes like every night. So like if they were doing stuff right. on the whole whole hole, they, that would be the one that would film it. Everybody who played that hole for all the episodes would go in that one night. So right, right, yeah, that makes sense. So that like the. So if people watch, they would just send them on their way. They would keep the people who won like in the bubble, right? Yeah, but yeah, I mean that makes sense. But I think it's gonna be a fun season. I'm excited to see where they go with it. I like to keep the form at the format of you win the episode, you're in the finale, you're playing for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I like that they kept that angle instead of giving every, every single episode like a twenty five thousand dollars prize. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it makes it more of a, a concise season, right? You have people that won, they're going to come back to to compete in the real prize, right? Yeah. You won the gadget jacket. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> you win the jacket, you win the golden putter, and now you have to come back to win the money. Yeah. Season one, I think again they were trying to feel out there was growing pains, like how, how are we going to make a formatted season, right? Yeah, I think that makes some sense. I remember, Polcano yeah. was the final hole. Season one, every, every episode. Now it's now it's just like a regular hole. Yeah, I was worried they were making Pecker go that way. It was a final hole every episode. I was happy last episode when it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I like that they're they're doing the final hole on different holes. I like that aspect that, that you don't know what you're gonna get. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like for nostalgia's sake if we had the final hole on hole 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 once. So I think it'd be funny to see that be the final thing. Yeah, that would be funny. That would yeah. be cool. Yeah. We're excited to see where this goes this season. I thank you for taking all the time. Obviously, you could be back next week because we're wrapping up the Clone Wars next. We're doing Sky Guys season seven next week. Yeah, yeah, we are. Next week, we're finishing up. We're finally through Clone Wars. I have, you know, a lot of opinions about season seven, and I'm sure Nick does as well, and I'm sure you do as well. We're finally wrapping that up, and then we're going towards Rebels, right? Yes, we're going to do Rebels later in the summer. And I want to ask you, out of curiosity, how far into the season seven are you as of recording? Okay, so usually I'm a last minute kind of guy. Yes. We know that from our podcast. I'm going to check right now. I'm going to go on my Disney Plus account, if you can bear with me on my phone. So you have started. Tell so, you exactly where I am because I want this to be as accurate as possible. So, so you have started the season already. I have started the season. I've gotten through the first arc and I'm in the second arc. I know that. Yeah. So you're, um, you're first in. First arc is a little preview. Of the bad fantastic, bad. in my opinion. Yeah. All right, let's see. So Star Wars, the Clone Wars season seven, I am up to episode six. So I've gotten five episodes done. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more episodes before we record for season seven. You got time. I, I can. I mean, the 20 minute episodes, I can do that in two and a half hours. Yeah. I mean, the, the next three are going to be rough for you because that arc sucks. The one you're in right now. I'm I'm I slowly <laughs> know that from seeing the first episode. But we'll, we'll talk about it more next week. I, I yeah I just finished that arc. I am going. I had the last one to start, so I still have four left as of recording. So I'll probably be like two days. I'll be done. You know what was interesting? What I had an idea of a little too late. What if we? And I, I don't know you know how how this would go, but like, what if we watched the last episode live? Yeah just did a live reaction i was thinking about it, I was like it's not gonna work whatever but it was like one of those like aha moments like oh that would have been cool but it's not gonna work but anyway no, i mean nick suggested at one point you watched the whole last arc live the final four episodes but again it's sort of like a scheduling issue where we can't all commit to like an hour and a half and that scheduling issue also to like we'd have to do commentary as we're watching it and i feel like we wouldn't be able to get the full grasp of everything because yes. we'd be going back and forth and if we had to pause it that 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 podcast would be three hours long each episode yeah you're right. Scheduling and timing, it just didn't work out. So we're sorry. We can't do the live reaction. It would have been cool, but you're still going to get our our expertise on it. You're still going to get our opinions. So yeah. that's all that really matters, right? Yeah, we are. And we're going to see who is the best and the worst character of the whole show at the end of this because the seasons, the MVP and the LVP boards are tight. So yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a race to the finish. All right, Pete. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be following social media and some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, Twitter at PJConsidori29. Uh, you spell that C-O-N-S-A-D-O-R-I. I'm sure links are in the description and and you can see my spelling my name there as well. Doing a lot of Rangers retweets. Stanley Cup finals are approaching. So a lot of stuff going on in the Twitter world for me. 
All right, Pete, thanks again. I appreciate it. See you next week. Thanks, Mike. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Tim Ryder, for coming on to talk all about the Mets. It was a fun conversation. And the Mets, again, very exciting place for them. They are in position to make a big run in the second half, so we just need to see what happens to them. I also want to thank Phil Fred, our legal correspondent, for coming on to break down the NCAA Supreme Court ruling and talk about the sticky stuff situation in baseball, which is a sticky mess. I also want to thank Pete Consor, who just heard from breaking down some holy moly. A lot of fun there. You know, I stuff like this podcast, including my look at the takeaways you need to know about Wimbledon this year. And it's back after a COVID-induced hiatus in 2020. We're back for 2021 at the All England Club. My takeaway is what you need to watch at the Fortnite the next couple of weeks. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You'll find all episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. Help make the podcast even better going forward. You can also check out my YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. My chats with Tim. Uh, Phil and Pete are all going to be on the YouTube page. Individual conversation, all episodes are up there, so feel free to check out the YouTube page. Mike Phillips on YouTube. You want to keep track of all of that. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up next week, we are going to get into more of the NBA. The NBA Finals are fast approaching. We're going to talk about that. Sky guys are back again. Quick turnaround. We're going to wrap up our coverage of the Clone Wars. That is coming next for us after we finish that show. But there's more as well. Until then, I hope you have a better week than the Diamondbacks fans. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies. Bring your wife.